Greetings, friends and family. Today is Sunday, May the 24th. It is the seventh Sunday of the Easter season. We've been looking at the Gospel of John, going backwards to look at those days and, and that time leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because you see, these are these moments, these final moments that Jesus has with his disciples. And so the things that he's teaching them is of vital importance, vital importance. And so we're going backwards and looking. So today we look at John chapter 17, beginning with verse 20 through 26, reading from the NIV. Listen as I read. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for them may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be wholly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, Amen. What is it that Jesus is praying for? Well, this is the final Sunday of the Easter season, and our passage today comes from this lengthy prayer that Jesus offers at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John. And today's passage appears at, at the end of that prayer. Immediately after these words, Jesus and his disciples are, are going to leave the upper room, cross the Kidron Valley in the darkness of night, and, and come to the garden where Jesus will be taken captive by this group of soldiers and police who are, who are guided there by Judas. And the prayer that Jesus taught and, and which begins, Our Father, has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's the Lord's Prayer in the sense that he offered it as a model for his disciples and for us to use. But, but we actually have no record of Jesus ever praying that prayer himself. We do, however, have this other prayer, which Jesus offers shortly before he is taken captive, subject to multiple tortures, and then finally crucified. This prayer, which occupies chapter 17 in John's Gospel, is the Lord's Prayer in the sense that he himself offers it, and does so at the most critical juncture in his life. It may seem a bit out of place to consider this prayer late in the, the Easter season, so long after Holy Week and all the events. Here we are, after all, in this, that period between the ascension of Jesus and, and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which we'll talk about next week. But what is the content of his prayer? Well, I would suggest that the, the intercession that he offers for us in heaven at, at, at God, the father's right hand remains one and the same with his intercession for us that he offered here on earth. And that today's gospel goes, 
goes far in making known to us the, the great themes of that intercession, that intercessory prayer. So, so let's mention a couple of them, these themes. First of all, Jesus prays for his disciples that they might be one, even as he and the Father are one. And then secondly, he prays that his followers in every generation because of this will be united for it is by this unity that the world will come to believe that he has been sent by the father. These are the themes about which Jesus prays on the night before his death. And I would suggest that they are themes about which he prays even now as he makes intercession right now on our behalf. Jesus wants his disciples to be one. And this, this seems like a safe request and, and, until we consider it closely. Je, you know, Jesus wants his disciples to be one in a world marked by countless divisions of one group of people over against another. The division of Christians is contrary to what Jesus wants. He wants our unity. We have here actually a mandate for the abolishment of all divisions, which set one group of people against another. Christian unity is not intended by Jesus to be simply an in-house issue. It is essential to our witness of the world. The church's mission is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. We have been reconciled with Christ, and we have then been given a ministry all of us, of reconciliation. The church is God's own unity movement. And because of this, we can't fault the world if it looks to us, the church, to demonstrate the unity that we, the church, have pledged to demonstrate. We can't fault the world when it asks the church to practice what it preaches. So I'm about to say a pretty big statement here, so hear me out. I believe that when Jesus looks at believers, at Christians, he does not see us as just isolated individuals. He recognizes us as persons, of course, certainly. He created us, knit us together in our mother's wombs. He wants to be intimate with us. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. He knows the number of hairs on our head, but as persons, rather, in community with one another. That relationship is never intended to be private. It is personal, to be lived out in community. He does not see us as apart from each other. His vision, indeed, is that we are one, united. And if that is how Jesus Christ sees us, then maybe that needs to be the way that we Christians begin to see ourselves. Paul called this message, and he echoes it when he declares later in his, in his letter to the church at Galatia in Galatians that, Christ, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one, he tells them, in Christ Jesus. Paul was insisting so much on the unity of Christians that he declares they are no longer separated from each other by the three causes of separation dominant in Paul's world. Number one, ethnicity. Secondly, social status. And thirdly, gender. He does not claim that these characteristics are abolished. He, he doesn't claim that differences don't exist. 
These differences are God-ordained. They are God-created. But he insists that for Christians, these are no longer factors that separate people into antagonistic sides, into tribes of us and them. You see, in the Christian community, Gentiles and Jews find themselves one, as do slaves and masters, women and men. The old order is dead. The resurrection of Jesus brings with it a new world in which those once at odds are now reconciled and united. Paul is announcing how Jesus sees it and inviting his contemporaries to see it that way also and to live out the consequences of living in unity. I believe that that Jesus prays now for his disciples to be one and that he sees us as one already. And if Jesus sees it that way, there's a mighty powerful implication here that we should see ourselves in the same way and live out the consequences of unity, which is the prayer of Christ. Again, we're not talking about uniformity, reducing everybody to the same, to the sameness, to dullness. Diversity, listen to this, diversity is not a new politically correct charged idea. It is a God-ordained and initiated idea. We are claiming that word back. It is not a bad word. Diversity is part of creation. Instead, the differences are not to be barriers any longer. The diversity is not the cause for antagonism. It is to be revealed as what it is. It is enrichment. It is for everybody. Our diversity is not for myself. It is for you. That is why I am created differently from you, for you, and you created differently for me. We are given to each other to live and to be united in Christ Jesus. The categories mentioned by Paul, well, there's still causes for, for concern today, are they not? Are people in today's world sometimes divided by ethnicity? Well, if you don't think so, then ask someone who's a different ethnicity than you. Don't ask someone like you. Ask someone different from you. Are people in today, uh, today's world divided by social class? Again, don't ask someone that lives in the same neighborhood as you do. You're in the same social class. Ask someone else. Are people in today's world divided by gender? You see, Jesus praying in the upper room that his disciples may be one. Well, it's a dangerous business. Unity, God-inspired, led, and ordained unity is dangerous business. Paul delegitimizing the prejudices of the ancient world is dangerous business. In today's church, recognizing how Jesus sees us as one and rejecting all barriers, old and new, that prevent unity, real unity, that is, unity in Jesus, unity in Christ, well, it is dangerous business. It means that we're challenging somebody's arrogance. And quite possibly, we're challenging the person's arrogance that's staring us right back in the mirror. But as Jesus himself indicates... Only by our unity, our no-nonsense embrace of one another, will the world come to believe. 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, you and me, so that they may know and be brought to complete unity. I want to close by reading Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you and I may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And until we get together again, may the Lord hold us all in the hollow of his hand.